TFM. Welcome, boomers, to another episode of Warp Five, our dedicated Star Trek Enterprise podcast. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as he always is, is my esteemed co-host Matthew Rushing. And Matthew, if you're all set, just select a method of compensation to begin the podcast. Uh, what am I compensating you for? <laughs> I don't remember. Now I'm a little bit well, worried, so, honestly. Someone has to produce this thing. Look, I'll accept either three warp coils, five deuterium injectors, or 200 liters of warp plasma. Hmm. Oh, okay. Hmm. Well, let me, uh, let me see what I can, we, we, we can work out a deal here and I'll get back to you. Okay. All right. Well, just your payment will be due upon completion of the production of the podcast. Just keep that in mind. Oh, well, I guess I better get on that then. So I better, you know, maybe start playing the ponies or something. You can do that in the recreation facility, which is now available for your enjoyment. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> this is great. This is good stuff. So, I mean, it, there's no catch, right? Like, no, uh, you know, I'm no, not going to. No, nothing. Okay. No. All right. I'm not going well, to any members of your crew or your family or anything like that. Don't worry. Oh, well, that's ominous. So, hmm. Yeah, that um, I'm going to I'm going to step outside. <laughs> yes, everyone. We are continuing our 20th anniversary rewatch of Enterprise today with the 4th episode of Enterprise Season 2 Dead Stop. And here is a quick rundown of the story. Having suffered serious damage in the Romulan minefield, the Enterprise sends out a distress call and is directed by Tellarites to a mysterious space station, apparently built as part of a cross-promotional campaign with Arthur C. Clarke. Aboard the station, Archer learns that the Enterprise can be repaired in just 34.2 hours for a price so low he can't refuse. Only that price turns out to be much higher as Travis goes missing and more and more inquiries are not recognized. Matthew, it's time to enter the haunted house of catfish. So you're... Uh, Chris, you're saying that this station made them an offer they can't refuse. That's right. Okay. All right. And apparently, then, it's run by the Godfather, which is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 2001, oh, sorry. a Godfather yeah. odyssey. Exactly. Yeah. There you go. I've, I've been I've been watching, I, my wife and I watched all the Godfather movies for her first time, and then we've been watching the offer uh, about the making of the Godfather, and I've actually been reading the novel for the very first time, so kind of like inundated with it, and that's just like, oh, that's that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling that there's a, a Godfather podcast coming soon. Um, probably <laughs> not, but you know, uh, that's... that. Uh, it would probably be something that would be really fun to do, uh, you know, sometime on the, the 602 Club to talk about them since we yeah. have never done that. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Well, so let's start with just the beginning of the story with Archer deciding that he has to call for help because we have this role reversal here. Uh, of course, in Star Trek, sometimes our crew needs help. But for the most part, Starfleet, they're the ones that are going around providing assistance to people in need. And here's a situation where 
they're really in a pinch. They don't know what to do. And also keep in mind that at this point, humans are just venturing out in space. So it is a mysterious and frightening place for them. Mm -hmm. Putting out a call is opening yourself up to a lot of potential danger from an alien mm -hmm. who could be much more powerful than you. So what did you think about the setup of this episode and Archer's decision to call for help? Well, so what I really appreciate about this part of the episode, Chris, and I think is really smart, is that this episode actually helps us remind ourselves of where we are in the Star Trek timeline, which is humans are out here alone and uh, they're very far from home. And I mean, a bit like Peter Parker in that latest uh, Marvel movie. Anyway, um, so they mention in the episode that, yes, at Warp 2, it would take them, what, 10 years? 12, yeah. 12 years yeah. to get back to Jupiter Station. Yeah. So we get this reminder of how small the NX-01 is and how big space is and how far they've been going, you know, at warp four mm -hmm. uh, for, for so many uh, a year now. And when all of their technology is not working correctly, it really does put them in a bind. One, because they don't know anybody in this part of Stip Ace, really. Uh, and two, you know, the ability to actually even contact people was really... Uh, puts the test mm -hmm. uh, because their subspace transceiver was damaged. Yeah. And so I I think what I love how this, like you said, reverses the roles then for the Enterprise being the one that needs help. And part of that is because there are no other Starfleet ships, right? There's there isn't really help out there for them. And so, yeah, I mean, Archer even saying to Hoshi in the message, just tell them that we have minor repairs and we're in need of assistance, you know, not giving too much of information, not wanting to basically broadcast to pirates out there. Right. Hey, we, you know, we're up a creek without a paddle. And uh, so come on over. Take us over. It'll be great. Yeah. You know, maybe um, the Ferengi will show up again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I, I just thought this is one of the things that is so smart about uh, this episode is that it in season two. This is the perfect reminder of where we are in space, who we are in space at this moment, and how lonely it is out here if something goes wrong for this crew, yeah. and how dangerous this mission really is. Yeah. Well, it feels a bit like in the real world, if you think about the Apollo missions and some of the things that went wrong there, and they have to figure out how to solve this without any real help. You know, they, they can mm -hmm. talk to Earth, yeah. but they are on their own. Yeah. And if you think about in fiction, but related to the same thing, for all mankind, some of the things that they had to overcome in the first couple of seasons of that show, where humanity is technologically advanced and we're venturing out, but when something goes wrong, you realize just how far we have to go how primitive mm -hmm. our technology still is. And in Enterprise here, most of the time when we're watching, we do feel like, oh, the Enterprise, it's an advanced starship and they're able to handle situations. But they lose their communications array gets damaged. They have serious hull damage. They have potential problems with the engines. And yeah, they're just stuck. And that is something that we're not 
really used to in Star Trek. So that, like you said, this episode really reminds us of where we are in time. So the other thing it does is that it gives us some soft continuity. We're not getting into serialization yet, but we're getting a bit more into continuity that goes beyond what we saw in Voyager, I guess. I I don't want to make that comparison exactly because we did have moments like this in Voyager, but this signals where Enterprise is headed. And in particular, the genesis of this episode came in part from a desire by the writers to not have that reset from episode to episode where the ship gets heavily damaged. And in the next episode, it's fine because apparently every Starfleet vessel has a chief engineer, Cooter, who fixes the doors of the General Lee during the commercial break so that Bo and Luke are all ready to go when we come back. And beyond the ship here, we also have Malcolm's leg and the need to rehabilitate that. So it's really interesting to me, Chris, because I think the thing that I compare Enterprise to here in it in it first season and then into the second season is actually those beginning episodes of Deep Space Nine, where there's that loose continuity that's happening, where they reference things from past episodes. It keeps building, especially, mm-hmm. you know, with the way the character development is going. And, you know, I, I think it's a thing to which obviously Deep Space Nine pioneered and did really well. And then I think Enterprise has really, you know, Voyager does have some continuity to it, but there's a there's a lot where it they don't take advantage of as much as they should have. Yeah. Um, I I think here, you know, Enterprise absolutely is is taking advantage of TV changing, and it's also really smart. You know, there's nothing more frustrating than that would happen on it on Voyager, where you would have the ship be really heavily damaged. It's felt like in that episode, and then next week everything's fine, and it's right. like. Okay, and and then that part too doesn't help you have an idea of how much time has passed and everything, and and that's something that this does too is that we know that this episode takes place you know right after yeah, what we just previously four watched. Four days the week they before. specify it yeah. in the story. Yeah. So I think all of that together is a wonderful choice for them to make, and I think what it does is actually helps them come up with a very interesting story then. It's very Star Trek-y and all of those type of things, which I think is wonderful, but by taking that road of creating some continuity like this, uh, it actually opened up the door for better storytelling opportunities than if they had just negated that and done something else. Yeah, yeah. Well, it makes the world feel more real, particularly here in the way that this leads right out of Minefield. And as I mentioned, they specify it's four days, but it's the fact that it is a direct continuation of the story, but it's not a a sequel per se. It's just acknowledging that the things that happened to us four days ago are still impacting us now. Mm -hmm. And Yep. The the ship, you know, I, I made the Dukes of Hazard comparison because of damage to the exterior of a vehicle. And yep. that's a, an obvious one. But what I really like here is the fact that they acknowledge that Malcolm's leg is injured and that mm-hmm. yeah. if you suffer an injury like that, it doesn't get better 
in four days. Even with their technology, even with the super leeches, it's going to take some time <laughs> for it to get better. And speaking of the leeches, I love the exchange when Phlox tells Malcolm, the wound might heal faster if you'd allow me to apply a few more regulin blood worms. And Reed says, you're not putting any more of those things inside my leg. You still haven't found the last one. And Phlox says, he'll come out on his own eventually. I just <laughs> picturing the idea of these uh, blood worms just... You know, eventually they've done their job. They wiggle their way out of your body, and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not awkward at all. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think you know that is actually something that this episode does, which is, and, and this is something that you had had on our outline, but it shows us just how far they have to go, right? Technologically. Um, you know, we see the the idea of uh, the energy converter, you know, mm-hmm. so you, you've got the replicator and um, those type of things. And you've got the ability to be able to do this intricate work of repairing a ship in a speed that humans have no c- connection with right now. Yeah. Part of that is, is, is probably the idea to create things out of, you know, inanimate matter. So you could, you know, create the right parts completely mm-hmm. and easily and all that stuff. And then two, I mean, the, the, the medical technology that they have, yeah. um, which feels like the type of medical technology we'll see in the next generation, you know, with uh, all of the stuff that hasn't necessarily been invented yet. Yeah. Well, it really feels like something we would see in the next generation because that exocomp has learned some new tricks since the quality of life. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you know, Flux, as as accomplished as he is as a physician, he's very impressed with that medical technology and what that former exocomp or future exocomp, converted exocomp, can do to assist Malcolm's legs. But he also points out later that they can't even replicate a single-celled organism when we get to the way he discovers that Travis has been replaced and those organisms from the vaccinations are uh, are dead in his bloodstream. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and I think that's actually pretty, you know, interesting is that what it shows is the amount of computing power you need to complete these type of mm-hmm. things, which is interesting because when you think about it, you know, um, we've got, what, almost 200 years before Picard, right? Yeah. So you, you think about how much like our technology has advanced in the last 100 years. Mm-hmm. We went from having no telephones to having one that fits in your pocket in an incredible amount of time. So you can see just how much technology is going to progress from those time periods. And it's just, it's a nice juxtaposition without, I think, like slapping you in the face. Um, and so the episode does a very good job of that. And and the other thing about this is, and I will say when we talked there about continuity, the one thing that is always missing is the fact that they never follow up with this ever again. And that's disappointing. Mm-hmm. You you have to read the Rise of the Federation books to get an understanding of where the station comes from. It's a species called the Ware, 
and everything uh, in Christopher L. Bennett's books, which is really cool that we finally actually follow up on that story. But I mean, this is this is not just an idea for following, you know, Minefield, but this would have been a really interesting series maybe to follow up in in like a season five. Yeah. Maybe yeah. they run into more of these stations and right. stuff and like you really get it because they set that up yeah, exactly. here in the episode. The fact yeah. that you can tell they're being recorded and all. Oh, and yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Well, and not only that, but it, the way the episode ends felt like it feels like they are setting up future stories involving mm-hmm. either this station or similar stations or the species that built it has this very eerie ending to it, which of course opened the door for Bennett to do something in his novels. But it's a little bit surprising that they didn't come back to it. And maybe if Enterprise had had a less bumpy life with the big shift in season three and then the big shift again in season four with Mm -hmm. Manny Koto coming aboard, maybe they would have come back to something like this because it, it is a great way to set up an intriguing mystery and even to set up yeah. a big adversary for future stories. Yep. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's absolutely kind of what they were going for. And again, I think that's the kind of thing where uh, I think they're they're doing that specifically because, like Deep Space Nine, it's it, you know I think they had learned again from Deep Space Nine that they're planting this seed there, yeah. and and it's there for them to be able to use when they can kind of like come up with a good idea to, yeah. to continue it and so or as we've, um, yeah. we've referred to it before on the orb dangling threads that you can pull yeah, exactly and mm-hmm. they can hang yep. there and just be part mm-hmm. of the the canvas of the series yes yep. and it's fine but if you want to mm-hmm. pull one you can yes i like i like the yep. thought of them being like threads dangling as opposed to seeds sprouting because they're more out of the way in that sense. Yeah, I think that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. That's how I always think about DS9. And the reason they were able to build such a rich mythology in that show, because they did have all these things that they could mm-hmm. pull from if they wanted to. And if they didn't, you didn't feel yep. cheated. You didn't feel like the writers just left you with the dead end so much. It's more like a either an intriguing premise that didn't get followed up on but understandably so, or something that could have been followed up, but you feel like there was enough closure, you know, as it yeah. was. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I think that's, yeah. that's a hundred percent right. So, well, let's talk about, as I called it in the opening, the haunted house of catfish. That's my new name for the station. It's a beautifully simplistic design. It always reminded me of 2001, a space odyssey and the computer mm-hmm. reminds me a lot of the HAL 9000 in that film. Yeah. And yet it's a very kind of a, a creepy, frightening place, I think, because it's so sterile and it's so mm-hmm. empty. And because you interact with this computer, but it can be difficult because you always feel at a disadvantage, yep. like the computer is only going to deal with you as it wants to, right? Right. And a lot of weird things happen in this brightly lit place. Travis and other aliens are abducted. Well, in this episode, Travis is abducted, but we we learn that apparently the station abducts 
aliens anytime they come, someone from the crew. You've got Tripp and Malcolm sneaking around, but as people sneak around, they suddenly get transported back to the bridge, for example. Yeah. Lots of weird stuff going on here. What did you think about the environment? Yeah, I th- that's one of the things I think that works really well, and it, it's actually kind of uh, something to which you can see where production design minimalism can really benefit you as the designer and to tell your story. Um, and I think that's something that they did a great job in creating this sense of of fear that I think you would rightly have with this station because it it doesn't seem to make sense. Right. Because the environment is the opposite of what you would expect from a place. You know, exactly. it's it's not Impaknor. It's not this dark, creepy place. It's this clean, bright place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I, I, I like that. I, I, I think, again, it's just one of those things where the production designers put a lot of thought into what they were creating um, and that the best way to actually make this creepy was to make it a place that was really not all of that interesting to look at, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and and like you said, just felt very sterile. And it does. It feels like a hospital almost. Yeah, yeah, like, it does. Um, there's that, that, I think there is that really creepy aspect to it. That or an Apple like, store. <laughs> yeah, it, it does feel like an Apple store. That is 100% correct. So, yeah, yeah um, I, I, I think this is the right design for the show and it immediately puts you off and it what i think what's great about it is that by creating it like this you don't question the fact that archer would begin to question right like that's Mm -hmm. the thing i think that's really beautiful is that because of the design it makes sense that archer's going to be like Something seems off about this whole thing. Yeah. And I don't know what it is, but it's just real weird. And I, I'm not comfortable with it. And I, I think that's the thing to me that I, I really um, I like about the design work. I, th- I think that is really, really smart then. so. Well, Archer sees a facility that transforms itself so that the Enterprise can come inside and dock with it. The environment itself changes so that humans can breathe. All the controls are in English. It knows how to make catfish with cornbread and greens on the side. Mm -hmm. And they can repair the ship so quickly and they really don't want much in return. And so, yeah, all of that just raises red flags. Do you think that Archer would have been as suspicious if this had happened a month after leaving Earth at the beginning of the series. I, I No, I think that's a really great question, and I don't think that he would have been, which is something I think really helps the episode. Because again, we are playing with where Archer is as a character now, which is perfect. Um, we are taking into account everything that he's been through. And by doing that, it allows us to be able to see, 
yeah, I, I'm I'm with Archer now that he's able to to piece this together, which is really smart. I, again, like there's just this uh, this writing that um, they're taking into account the fact we're in season two now, and that that characters are different, mm-hmm. and I I love that. I absolutely love that because it it really to me makes a lot of sense um, that Archer would act this way. So I think that's a great question. Yeah, yeah. I think it shows the gradual maturity of the crew Mm -hmm. overall. Yep. And Archer in particular as a leader after all the experiences. And if you think about what happened to Archer in Shockwave, for example, now he's really much more on the lookout for... like He understands how dangerous and and how unexpected space and time even can be. So he's learned mm-hmm. a great deal in a short yeah. time. Yeah. You mentioned earlier how much computing power is necessary to do these things when we were talking about the, the medical technology, for example. And I was thinking, because there's this line in here where Tripp and Malcolm are talking about the computer, and Tripp says that the station's computer can perform billions of calculations every nanosecond. And it fits inside the proverbial bread box, he says. Mm -hmm. And this got me thinking about technology and how it advances, which is something you mentioned earlier about where Starfleet technology is now and where it will be in Picard's time a couple of centuries later. Then I also started thinking about what is powering the station's computer? And we know that Travis is abducted and he's plugged in. And so I named it this little part of the outline powered by the T1 chip, meaning yeah. the Travis chip. And the reason is because I started thinking that way is because, as you know, I'm a big Apple fan and a big Apple user. And they did these new chips last year, which they call the M1 chips. And it is quite a big leap technologically over the -hmm. chips that we've had from Intel and others in recent years. And what those chips can do, it's quite incredible. The M1 can perform 11 trillion operations per second. And this one they have called the M1 Ultra can perform 22 trillion operations per second which blows my mind as someone who's been keeping so up crazy. with technology since the early 80s and following, you know, and, and when I used to hear numbers that were immensely lower than that, I thought, wow, that's incredible. So I started thinking, well, what does that mean in terms of where we are now compared mm-hmm. with what the writers thought 20 years ago when they wrote the lines, billions of calculations every nanosecond? And I thought, well, you know, we're progressing way faster than they thought we would. But then I used some of my very, very bad math skills to figure out, well, okay, so (laughs) the M1 Ultra, how many calculations per nanosecond can it perform? And if my bad math is correct, it's only 22,000 calculations per nanosecond. So Mm. as great as this advancement seems to us today... What Tripp is talking about is still like mind-blowing, something we can't comprehend. Mm-hmm. And yet, we see 
the limitations of even that technology at play in this episode. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I absolutely love that and you pointing that out because I think one of the things that it shows us is that as great as all that is, you can only create basically inanimate objects uh, or something that's that that's dead. You can't create something that's living. I mean, there's there's a massive difference in that, right? So I really liked that in this episode, and and I think you know again, it it does speak to the idea of how fast technology moves. And in many ways, what I kind of loved about this episode is that this feels like it's almost indistinguishable from magic for Mm -hmm. the Enterprise crew. Oh, yeah. You know? And yet, when we get to the Next Generation era, this is just going to be almost second nature to everyone on the crew, especially every time Picard decides he wants some tea. (laughs) You know? Um, And so... I, and 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 the the amount of energy and processing power that you need to actually make that happen, I think that's something that's just really cool. And and as we were kind of talking about earlier, is the way in which this this gives us a picture of just kind of how far we have to go and and how far we've come and all of those things. And so yeah, it, this to me is just one of those places where I do I think the Enterprise writers have really tapped into just something that I don't even know if they were necessarily cognizant of that idea of like giving us that picture. Mm-hmm. Maybe they were, and you know, I'd like to think they were because it, it seems like almost pretty obvious to me that that's the case. But yeah, this is, this is just very interesting, good writing happening. And um, it creates a really creepy good episode which you know like you call this kind of the haunted house of catfish and yet this is just a a creepy episode which is also something that's really fun and doesn't mm-hmm. happen you know uh i i kind of think of like empok nor yeah. as being the kind of episode that this turns out to be where this you know this things look okay and then everything just turns to like the shining before mm-hmm. you're done so well Another creepy episode that we've already discussed on here is Voxola, and that episode and this episode, both directed by Roxanne Dawson. Mm, yeah, so, yeah. So I think she does a good job of creating that atmosphere of I think you're right, mystery. Yeah. And yeah, the, the technology here, what I find interesting also is the trajectory of our own world and the Star Trek universe especially when we look back 20 years like we're doing right now with the writing and anticipating where we would go because we are already able to replicate parts, not not gigantic panels mm-hmm. like we see being uh, magically created here to fix the hole, but parts that we need to build things. We're able to 3D print those now. And... It's a different approach from the Star Trek replicator. The way we're going about it is different, but the result is the same. And I wonder if we will make that transition to actually just somehow bringing matter together rather than having to have a medium first, a material Mm -hmm. first that we then print. Right. And then in medicine, you know, I just saw a story a couple of days ago that they have 3D printed an ear, a human ear. What in the world? That's for crazy. an organ transplant, and you know, previously I've heard about wow. the possibility. How of, does that work? 
yeah, it's interesting because you have to use biologically living tissue to make organs yeah, exactly work so your body will accept them. I think it's really interesting because once you're able to do that, you can also avoid mm-hmm. organ rejection by using the patient's yeah, own DNA yep. as part of the yep. process of 3D printing, which yeah. is really cool. And again, That's the way amazing. we're going about it is different, but we're able to do that. So it, it really opens up the possibilities of what we'll be able to do in the future. And even if our path is a bit different than what writers in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s anticipated, a lot of what we see in Star Trek that has always felt like magic to us may actually be possible. And I like in episodes like this one where we see ourselves as humans, but much more advanced than we are now, being in awe of technologies that they still can't comprehend. Yeah, I think I think that's awesome. You know, and, and what I think is that that brings you all the way back to the classic science fiction. You think, I, I mean, I think of you know, Jules Verne and and those kind of writers and, and so much of what they ended up creating became reality. And I think that's the same thing here is like so much of of what's being thought of in Star Trek has become reality. I mean, you know, we know for a fact that the people who created the like razor flip phones were thinking of Star Trek communicators mm-hmm. when they were creating it because they were inspired by the ideas that they had seen in science fiction. And to me, I think that's just a hundred percent fascinating. And it, it just shows the way in which imaginative stories and human imagination can truly create something phenomenal and it it just makes it a lot of fun. So I, you know, this is the type of episode I think that really speaks to that idea. And I mean, I had that's amazing. Like I'm still I'm sorry, I'm just kind of blown away. Like the whole idea of like you can create organs yeah. for people. Yeah. Like how amazing is that? Yeah, it's really going to change our world change our medicine yeah a hundred percent well and and like all the lives that you would save because Mm -hmm. of it and i mean that's just so i you know i think that's one of the things that makes it just in in many ways like it it does make star trek special right chris i mean it's one of those things which this is a show um like all good science fiction to which has really had an impact on the world in which we live because it's helped people to think outside of the box yeah and yep. it's it's helped them imagine things that they might not imagined themselves. But once their imagination was was you know checked in to that idea, they ran with it, yeah. and then they just created something really cool. So, I you know, I don't know. That's just really neat. Yeah, so. absolutely. Well, what are your final thoughts on this episode, Matthew? What's your rating? Yeah, Chris, I, I think this is a really good episode. Um, I and I think you know anybody who's been listening to to our episode here can can understand why I would feel that way. I think I love the continuity that they used for the episode, and and the fact that they do that here in Enterprise and they're willing to do that. Um, I love the idea of um, they not only use the continuity from the previous episode, right? But as we mentioned, this episode takes into account who Archer is now. And who this crew is now, right? I mean, even Trip and Malcolm are like, 
I don't, this seems weird, right? Is, is, and maybe we should investigate this. We're explorers. We should figure out what's going on, you know, because it's not just the idea of like what this power can do, but I think they are also intrigued by something seems off about mm-hmm. this place, you know? And so again, I think all of that comes down to utilizing all that we've done in this series so far and, and to the, the, clear benefit of us is is the audience like i think you're also treating the audience as smart right Mm -hmm. like you know oh yeah the audience can handle this so uh i just i i i might be gushing about the episode but i I think this is four and a half out of five liters of warp plasma so yeah it's uh it's an excellent episode it's really well done and i think what it to me, I remember watching it back in the day, and this is one of those things where I was like, oh, man, I think Enterprise might kind of be hitting its stride here. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, which will be interesting to see how we feel about that next week. So, Yeah. Well, we had Carbon Creek, then we had Minefield, now we have this. So, yeah. yeah. Yep. It's a, a strong yeah, run. Basically, season two here was on a roll. Yeah. So, what about you, Chris? Where, where do you end up landing? This has always been one of my favorite episodes. When it first aired, I thought it was really cool. I've watched this episode so many times. It's one that I go back to and just rewatch because I like the story. I, of course, love the Star Trek universe and the stories that unfold within the universe that rely on the mythology that we've built. But I also Mm -hmm. think that Star Trek is at its best as science fiction when it transcends that mythology and it tells a story that stands on its own and doesn't require the Star Trek wrappings to work as a story. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the visitor is it's that's one reason the visitor or the inner light are stories that I think work really well, because if you took all the Star Trek wrappings away and you told that story with different characters, it would still have impact. And I think that this story could work just fine without all the Star Trek elements. And that strengthens the story when you put the Star Trek elements into it. So I I really love it for that reason. And I just think it's a very creative. I mean, I know it draws on ideas both in story and visually and thematically from other science fiction. But I think that as a Star Trek story, it's a very interesting and creative idea. And so I really mm-hmm. like it for that. And I'm going to give it 9 billion calculations per nanosecond. Uh, that is a fantastic rating, Chris. <laughs> well, everyone, we would love to hear your thoughts and your ratings on this episode. There are many ways for you to share those with us. Perhaps the best way is to go to Facebook and join the Babel Conference. That is our listeners group. If you're already a member, you know how it works. But if not, just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field, and it should come right on up. If not, just type the whole name, the Babel Conference. It is a closed group. So if you're joining, please answer the questions and agree to the rules of the forum so that I can let you in. One of the questions we ask is, what is your favorite Trek of Him podcast? And that's one that often goes unanswered, but it's how we know that you are a listener. Because the purpose of the group is to extend the conversations beyond the podcasts to the audience where you can share your thoughts with fellow listeners and with Matthew and me. And we'd love to hear those there. 
If you'd like to send us an email, you can do that by going to our website, trek.fm slash contact. Use the form you find there. Choose to send to a show and choose Warp 5, and that will come right over to us. And you can find us in social media on Instagram, Twitter, everywhere. Our username is trekfm. And if your podcast app of choice allows you to leave a rating and a review, we'd love to have that from you as well. Now, Matthew, when you're not reconfiguring yourself to fit the saucer section, where can people find you? I still can't figure that out, Chris, but when that's not happening, you can find me all over social media under the name MattRushing02, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, uh, all of those type of places. Uh, of course, here on the network, you can find me in the 602 Club, which is uh, part of the network we have that doesn't have anything to do with Star Trek. We talk about all those other fandoms we love, so have a lot of fun doing that. And then, of course, you can find me in Literary Treks, as well as, Chris, we talked about the orb that we do together about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Literary Treks about the books and the comics of Star Trek. Uh, we've got the Artificial Tango, which is about Star Trek Picard. We just finished season two. And then Saddle Up, where we talk about Strange New Worlds, which has been a blast, too. Uh, and then you can find me over on the Nerd Party Network with a couple of shows. One's completed. I did it with Drea Kaufman, and we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time in Owl Post. And then Aggressive Negotiations, to do that with John Mills, and that is a Star Wars podcast. Now, Chris, um, you know, when you're not trying to figure out how you can get more pan-fried catfish out of this device, where can people find you? Well, I'm going to be a bit busy because I've accepted Archer's challenge. I'm going to try to find a shorter way, and I'm going to see if I can do the Jupiter Station run in less than 12 parsecs. But Oh, good luck with that. <laughs> oh, man. But, uh, when I am finished with that... You can find me podcasting here on the network. Of course, I do the shows with you that you just mentioned. Also, Larry Nemechek and I do the Ready Room from time to time. And there's Interphase, and you can find me in episodes from all sorts of shows in the back catalog. So check those out if you want to hear more of my thoughts on Star Trek. I'd also love to hear from you in social media if you'd like to chat. My username is C Brian Jones, letter C and Brian with a Y. That's my username everywhere, but Twitter is where I'm most active, and I'd love to hear from you. If you would like to help us keep this show and everything that we're doing on the network going, we could definitely use your help. To find out how to get involved and to support us, please visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. We really would not be here without the support of all of you. And thank you so much to everyone who's supporting us now. And if you're not, I do hope that you will consider doing so we really could not keep the network going without your support. So thank you so very, very much, everyone. Well, Matthew, I'm going to get all the gremlins out of the studio floor here. It's been a little bit squeaky. And then I'm going to get ready for next time when we'll spend a night in sickbay. Chris, that just sounds like a fantastic idea because I don't think anybody wants that squeak on their podcast recordings. So let's go. <laughs> <laughs>